Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the first chapter of Romans. Uh, This is the second of a a two-part sermon. You might remember that last week I mentioned that I wanted to divide this into two parts. We're in Romans 1, 18 through 32. We're going through passage by passage this great New Testament book, what we're calling the greatest letter ever written. And uh, Paul's making basically one argument from verses 18 through 32, and so we're dividing that into two parts. Last week, we considered the question of why the wrath of God is being revealed, and today we're considering the second part of that, which is how God's wrath is being revealed. So you'll see, if you want to look at verse 18 in Romans chapter 1, that Paul mentions the wrath of God is revealed. And that's just an interesting way of putting it. He's saying the wrath of God is presently, right now, being revealed. And that brings some questions to our mind, doesn't it? How is that happening? Because I think most of us, when we think of God's wrath, we think of fire from heaven or the earth opening up and swallowing people or maybe plagues being sent down like God did upon the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. These are all interventions, God stepping in to bring about his wrath. But we don't really see that in our world today, do we? We don't see the ground opening up. We don't see fire and brimstone coming down from heaven. So we might ask, well, where is this wrath of God? And maybe God really isn't that wrathful. Maybe he's not angry at the way things are going in our world and in our culture. Maybe he's perfectly happy with it. Maybe he approves of things, and that's why we don't see his wrath. But nonetheless, we have this statement in verse 18, wrath of God is revealed. So how is that happening? And that's the question I want to seek to answer this morning. So we're going to be looking at verses 24 to 32 in Romans chapter 1. Last week we looked at verses 18 through 23. You might remember by brief review we learned last week that the existence of God is very plain in the created order, that human beings tend to look at that plain evidence and suppress that evidence of God's existence, denying that He exists, which then flows into a kind of a defiled, corrupted worship where we worship things created rather than the Creator. So that's where Paul has gone from verses 18 to 23, and now he's picking up here in verse 24. So if you have your Bibles open to that passage, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans 1, 24 to 32. Therefore... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Lord in heaven, we need your spirit to understand rightly your word. So send the Holy Spirit of truth to this place as your word goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here's the kind of the, the answer to the question. I'm just going to kind of give it to you right away, and then we're going to unpack it and explain. How is the wrath of God revealed? Here's what's the, the counterintuitive answer, different than what we would expect. It's not by God's intervention, at least as Paul is describing it here. God's wrath is not revealed in His coming into or stepping into our world and doing something as an act of punishment. According to this passage, God's wrath is revealed by His stepping back and leaving us to ourselves. That's kind of the key point that Paul is making here. And we see it in this phrase that it shows up three times in the passage I just read. The phrase, the phrase is, gave them up in verse 24, in verse 26, and in verse 28. God gave them up. The them in that statement um, are the, uh, the Roman society in which Paul was living and ministering. He's talking about those people in Rome given over to certain expressions of immorality, and Paul is writing about them saying God has given them up. And there's three ways here that God has given them up. And this explains to us how it is that God's wrath is revealed. This is not just true for Roman times, it's true for today as well. The first thing we see is this, God gave them up in their hearts. Okay, verse 24, you see that? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He gave them up in their hearts. Those who have witnessed the evidence of God in creation and have suppressed that knowledge, God's response to that is not to strike them down, but to give them up, to let them have what they want, to withdraw His restraining grace so that their hearts can then go forward and engage in whatever they please to do. It's like that quote from C.S. Lewis, he said, there are really two kinds of people in the world, that there's one group who looks to God and says, thy will be done, and there's another group to whom God looks and says, thy will be done. Have it as you wish. Do what you want. What Paul is saying here is that this is a form of God's wrath being revealed 
on humanity. You know, what might this look like? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, sometimes we'd find an old bicycle and we'd give it a ghost ride. You ever do that? You get on the bike and you kind of ride it for a little while and then you jump off and just let the bike go and just see where it winds up and it never winds up good. It always crashes, it always gets hurt, it always does something you wouldn't expect it to do. That's kind of the picture, I think, that we're getting here. God just letting the human, kind of putting the human race on a kind of a ghost ride, just letting them ride into their own self-destructive tendencies. Another example might be just a parent with a rebellious teenager, and the parent is trying to get that teenager to respect mom and dad, or to act responsibly, and after a while the parent just says, look, I'm just going to take my hands off and just let you do what you want to do in the hopes that you will see and regret the decisions that you're making. That's what's being explained to us here in Romans chapter 1. Here's the thing. We very often think that if we indulge in our sin, if we just do whatever we want, we think of it as a kind of a freedom, don't we? So often people resist religion or Christianity because they think of it as a restriction on their freedom. And so they want to get away from that so they can be free and do whatever they want. But what Paul will say later in Romans chapter 6 is that the freedom to indulge in sin is actually a kind of a slavery. Romans 6, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In either case, you're a slave. And this giving up people to the lusts of their hearts is God's way of giving them up to the slavery of their own sinful indulgences. Commentator Paul Actemeyer <clears throat> says it like this, the permissiveness that we celebrate as a world that has come of age we now find to be nothing more than the permission to fall deeper into sin. Divine discipline is the measure of grace. When God restrains us from doing whatever we want to do, that's grace. Divine permissiveness is the measure of wrath. This is how God's wrath is revealed allowing our hearts to do whatever they want. Now, how do our hearts get that way? And we see in the rest of verse 25, or as we see in verse 25, Paul gives us the reason. Here's how their hearts got in that condition. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, he already said that in verse 23. He just kind of repeats it here in verse 25. And what Paul is saying here is that our sin problems are ultimately a worship problem. The, the reason that hearts are engaged in these lusts is because they have been moved to idolatry. You see, all of you, myself included, have been designed to worship. We're all worshipers by nature. We tell you that a lot here at New Life because it's very important to understand. You might think you're an agnostic or an atheist, and maybe you are, but you're still a worshiper that there is something that is preeminent and most important. There's something you treasure more than anything else, and that is the thing that you worship. And if it's not the true God, then it will be something else. Everyone has a treasure of some sort. 
Jesus said, where your heart is, there will, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What he's saying is whatever you make the treasure of your life, that's where your heart follows. And wherever your heart follows, that's what you worship. And so what Paul is saying here is the giving us up to our lust is a way of giving us to just pursue the treasures of our heart, no matter how destructive they might be. Another counterintuitive point, isn't it? Sometimes when God takes away our treasures, we think He's angry at us. Sometimes He takes away our treasures because He loves us, and that's good for us. One of the ways He shows His wrath, in some cases, is by removing our treasures, or by giving our hearts up to fully pursue those treasures, even though it might result in emptiness and destruction. So God's wrath is revealed, first of all, in giving us over to the lusts of our heart. But then he goes on and says this, that God also gave them up in their behavior. God gave them up in their behavior. If you look at verse 26, we see that phrase again. God gave them up, this time to dishonorable passions. Now in verse 26 and in verse 27, Paul touches on the issue of homosexuality, which is probably the most controversial moral issue of our time. You might have heard uh, yesterday that the nation of Ireland voted by popular vote to approve same-sex marriage, the first country in the history of the world to do so. And there's much celebration, and even in the media reports, there's much affirmation uh, as if this is a very positive development in our world. Uh, I don't think I have to explain too much how um, central this issue has been in the media and in politics over the last few years. The world at an alarming rate is moving further and further in the direction of embracing and approving homosexual relationships as normal. And it could be that, and likely is the case, that some of you and maybe many of you here in this church this morning have been touched by this issue in some way. You might have a uh, a brother or a sister or uh, a cousin, a friend, uh, a co-worker who perhaps is uh, openly engaged in the homosexual lifestyle or perhaps struggles with same-sex same attraction in some way, and maybe that's you today. You might be a person who finds yourself drawn to the same sex, and it's something that you've been struggling with. Um, I, I want to say this by way of introduction as we get into these verses. We need to make sure that as we come to um, a position on this issue, as we develop our convictions on this issue, it must not be based in the way we feel about it or the way we want it to be or by popular vote or by the movement of the culture or by the discoveries of science. We are Christians. Christians don't develop moral convictions based on those things. We develop our moral convictions based on the teaching of Scripture, first and foremost. And if you look at verses 26 and 27 with me, you'll see 
what Paul says about homosexual behavior. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Here's the case that Paul is making. Again, considering this in the context of verse 18 through 32, thinking of this whole passage um, as uh, the full context of Paul's argument here in verses 26 and 27. Paul is saying this, that if you look at the created world, if you look at the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets, we can see from that that God's existence is very plain. That's what he says back in verses 18 and 19. But we in our sinfulness have noticed that evidence and have suppressed it. God's existence is obvious, is what Paul is saying, through the created order. But we in our sinfulness have suppressed that. We've covered it up and we've engaged in this exchange in verse 25. We just talked about that a second ago. They exchanged the truth of about God for a lie, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That they did this absurd thing, really, that they demoted the creator of the universe and brought him low and dismissed him and denied him and then took created things and elevated them to a place of worship. And Paul is saying that this is one thing that brings the wrath of God. But then in a very similar way, God has not only created the sun, moon, stars, and planets, but he's also created human beings. He's created men and women, and he created them male and female. And in the same way that it is plain that God exists from looking at the created order, so is it also plain that men should engage sexually with women and women with men, not men with men, and not women with women. And you see the word exchange again used there in verse 25, or excuse me, 26. God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So you see that? The word exchange in both verse 25 and verse 26. There's a similarity drawn there between the exchange of idol worship and the exchange of heterosexual natural relationships for homosexual relationships. Do you follow that? But what Paul is basically saying is just as it's obvious that there's a creator, so is it obvious just upon common sense observance of men and women that homosexuality is not natural. That's what Paul is saying. You don't have to have a degree to understand that. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that. It is evident. It is obvious. Now, I don't think what Paul is saying here by mentioning homosexuality, that homosexuality is the worst of all sins, uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, an, is an unforgivable sin. Certainly, that would seem like a worse sin. Homosexuality is not the worst of all sins. I think the reason that Paul is referring to it here is because it's such a clear illustration of the denial of what is obvious in the created order. 
So Robert Gagnon says this, an absurd exchange of God for idols leads to an absurd exchange of heterosexual intercourse for homosexual intercourse. A dishonoring of God leads to a mutual dishonoring of selves. Homosexuality, homosexual behavior is a dishonoring of humanity. That's why Paul says in verse 24, this dishonoring of their bodies, sexual immorality is a dishonoring of the human body. Now, there's many attempts to revise this understanding. There are all kinds of efforts going on, uh, maybe surprisingly, in the Christian church, in various aspects of the Christian church, to revise this traditional understanding. What I've just explained to you has been the view of the church for centuries, and it's only just now being challenged. But nonetheless, there are many who are seeking to revise this and to come to the conclusion that maybe the Bible isn't speaking against homosexuality in the way that we have thought. And so I just want to share with you some of these arguments, these attempts to revise uh, the traditional view. Some will say this, well, you know, homosexuals are born with their sexual orientation and their disposition, and therefore they can't help their behavior. So we can't really ask them to change, we can't ask them to refrain because that's the way they were made and they don't really have a choice. And therefore they should be given a pass or they certainly shouldn't be held morally responsible for their actions and behavior. But if you look at verse 27, pretty strong um, statement here that Paul makes at the end when he speaks of male homosexuality, he says, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. For their error. What Paul is saying is that homosexual activity is an error, and it's their error that they cannot blame this on somebody else. They can't say, well, this is just the way I was designed. I can't help it. See, here's something to think. To put this all in broader context, friends, the issue is not so much our sexual orientation as it is our sin orientation. And every one of us has been born into this world with a sin orientation. Hearts that desire to reject God and engage in all kinds of sins and disobedience. That's why we all need a Savior. The sin orientation that comes with being born into this world in Adam is the problem that we all share, not just a problem that homosexuals deal with. But in any case, the fact that we're born with this sexual, or excuse me, with this sin orientation does not excuse us from the sins that we commit. So this argument I don't think is persuasive. Another argument sometimes used is this, that committed homosexual relationships are okay, with an emphasis on the word committed. If, if uh, homosexuals are faithful to each other, if they're committed to each other in a lifelong relationship, then that makes it okay. Now, my response to that would be that you don't see that exception being made in this text of Scripture 
I mean, if you're going to hold that position, you have to impose it on the text. There's nothing in the Bible that would support that, and this is something we have to be very careful about. That is reading things into the Bible that we want to see. And if we think about this logically, consider this. It's not like our faithfulness or or the integrity that we might display in committing a sin, it's not like that mitigates the sin. If somebody commits adultery, we don't say, well, it's okay for you to commit adultery just so long as you're committed to your mistress, or just so long as you treat her really well and with respect and you're kind to her, that then, then you know, the adultery can be excused. Nobody would say that. But that's kind of the same argument that's being used with homosexuality, as if the commitment involved somehow mitigates the seriousness of the sin. It doesn't. And there's certainly nothing in Scripture to give us that idea. Third thing, third argument, and, and there's, there's such an endless list of arguments. I'm only dealing with a few here that relate specifically to this passage. And this one relates most specifically. Uh, there's a lot of um, questions, a lot of uh, material written questioning what is the meaning of the word natural in verse 26. Their women exchanged natural relations. Uh, and verse 27, men likewise gave up natural relations. Here's how the argument goes. What people say is that it is natural for homosexuals to engage in homosexual behavior. It's not natural, however, for heterosexuals to engage in homosexual behavior. And so what Paul is actually condemning here are homosexual acts committed by heterosexual persons. This argument is advanced in in many places and it's widely accepted by those who embrace and support the homosexual lifestyle. The idea here is that homosexuals, they have a natural orientation in this direction, and so for them to commit this kind of lifestyle is perfectly natural, and therefore that's not what Paul has in mind. That's not what he's condemning. Response to that, two things. First of all, the context of this whole passage. Again, verses 18 through 32, I've been saying it over and over again. Clearly, the context here has to do with the created order. Uh, Going back to um, verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. That's what Paul has in mind here. So, the issue is not someone's personal desire, it's God's creational design. The the issue of someone's individual preference is not of concern to Paul here. What he's thinking about is the way things have been made, the naturalness of relations that spring from the way we have been created. So the whole context would not allow this particular interpretation, but maybe even more clearly, if you look at verse 27, Paul says, men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That's what homosexuals do, that they have passion for people of the same gender. 
if Paul were referring to heterosexuals, we couldn't say that because heterosexuals are filled with passion for the opposite sex. But Paul makes it clear here that the people in mind are those with a passion for the same sex. That's homosexuality. And that's what Paul has in mind. So I don't think any of these attempts to revise the traditional understanding work. I don't think they're persuasive. And that brings me just to some kind of final comments here about this particular issue. Um, the first is this. Friends, the, the Bible is clear on this issue. I, I hear a lot of Christians even acting like they can't really know and waffling on this issue. There's one popular Christian leader who said, Let, let's take five years now to study this and see if we can come to a consensus about what the Bible actually says. And we'll get together again in five years and see if we get any closer to understanding this. That is unnecessary. It is clear. And there is something, there's a temptation for people, and that is to corrupt and distort Scripture to make it mean what they want to mean. And that is a dangerous thing to do. And Peter warns against it here in 2 Peter. There are some things in Paul's letters, that's what we're reading here, a letter of Paul, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. You are morally responsible for how you handle Scripture. And it's a dangerous thing to knowingly twist it into something that it doesn't say. Just because there are a lot of biblical arguments brought forth to suggest that homosexuality is okay, just because there's a lot of challenges to the traditional understanding of Scripture doesn't mean it's unclear. So Kevin DeYoung just written a book about this, sums it up well. He says, silence on this issue in the face of such clarity, clarity of Scripture, is not prudence. And hesitation in light of such frequency, it's actually mentioned several times in the Bible, is not patience. The Bible says more than enough about homosexual practice for us to say something to. The Bible is clear. Second thing I want to say is this. There is an important distinction, I think, to be made here. I think what Paul is talking about here is homosexual behavior. That is a settled, unrepentant pattern of homosexual sexual behavior. That's what Paul has in mind. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about people who simply struggle with same-sex attraction. He's not talking about those who find themselves romantically or sexually drawn to people of the same gender, but who are seeking to live in obedience to God even with that desire. That's not what Paul has in mind here. So if that describes you today, you're a Christian, and, and you are trusting in Jesus, and you want to live for Him, but you find yourself, your heart is going after people of the same gender, don't take this to mean that you're under God's wrath. Don't take this to mean that God has handed you over. I, I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. We all, again, because of our basic sin orientation, all of us have disordered desires and lusts in our heart that we're all struggling with. 
What Paul has in mind here is people who are acting out upon it in an ongoing, unrepentant way. And I just want it to be clear that we want new life to be a safe place for people who struggle with all kinds of sins. No matter how much you've been hiding it, no matter how socially unacceptable, unacceptable they might be, we want this to be a safe place for you to bring your struggles, to talk about them openly. We want to walk with you and help you fight this. We don't want to walk with you and help you identify as a gay person and come out and begin living that lifestyle. No, but we do want to help you move toward holiness to submit your entire life to the Lordship of Christ. We are for you, not against you. And I hope you believe that. And I hope this conversation can continue in life groups or wherever is appropriate. The other thing I want to say is this, two more things. If you are a person who is engaged in ongoing, unrepentant homosexual activity, you need to repent of that. You need to turn from that lifestyle and submit your life to the Lordship of Christ. There is blessing in that. There is favor in that. And we want to help you with that. Last thing, um, I want to recommend that you read about this. It's very important for us as Christians to know what we think about this issue. You can hardly walk 10 steps down the street before you hear something about this issue. We need to be prepared to speak from a biblical perspective on this issue. And the way to get ready is to read. Three books here in order of difficulty. They start fairly simply and get a little more difficult. This book by Sam Albury, I don't know how well... That's showing on the screen, but it's called Is God Anti-Gay? by a man who himself struggles with same-sex attraction. Very brief, very simple, very helpful and effective. This next book, Kevin DeYoung, just came out about a month ago, I think. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? Um, highly recommend it. I haven't read all of that book, but um, what I've read is, is very good. And now if you're ready to you know, really put your thinking cap on and hear every conceivable argument that has been made on this issue, this is the book for you, Robert Gagnon, The Bible and Homosexual Practice. That's a long, detailed, scholarly, heavy book, uh, but excellent. And um, I, I don't think that those supporting the homosexual lifestyle have any arguments to respond to what Gagnon has said in this book. So those books I recommend to you, okay? Um, one last thing, one last phrase, giving them over. God's wrath is revealed, giving us over in our hearts, giving us over in our behavior, and lastly, in giving them over in their minds. If you look at verse 28, we see this phrase again. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Here's one of the ways that God's wrath is revealed. It's when people can't think straight anymore. That they're governed by irrationality. They have an inability to perceive the world as it actually is. They see the truth about God revealed in creation. They suppress that truth and cover it up. And that leads to a suppression of the truth about ourselves as well, which then leads to an entirely distorted moral compass. So what is right is called 
wrong, and what is wrong is called right, and everything is morally upside down. That's the result of a debased mind. Here's what people do. Here's what we're all tending to do as sinners. We, we see something wrong, but our heart lusts after it, so we want it. But the only way that that can happen is if we present that thing to us as something right. We have to say this wrong thing is right. We have to rationalize that somehow. Nobody wants to do something wrong for the sake of doing wrong, so we take what is wrong and we justify it, ignoring the truth about what is right and good in order to protect the illusion that we so, long, that we so much long to embrace. And Paul mentions that in verse 32. I think this is just an expression of it. They know God's decree. They, 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 they understand it. And they also know that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know that judgment is going to happen for those who rebel against God apart from Christ. But they not only do these things, they even give approval to those who practice them. It's all part of this grand scheme of self-deception. Not only am I going to convince myself that it's okay for me to do it, I'm going to convince myself it's all right for everybody else to do it, because if everybody else is doing it, it makes it okay for me to do it. That's a debased mind. Here's what Robert Riley says. When morally disordered acts become the defining centerpiece of one's life, vice can permanently pervert reason. The rationalization can turn into a prison from which one cannot escape. And that is a picture of the wrath of God upon our culture. Does, does anybody doubt that that's where our culture is The wrath of God is being revealed in the way people can't think straight about what is right and wrong. I disagree with Riley in one place. He says, a prison from which one cannot escape. Friends, thankfully, there is an escape. There is an escape. And I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward as I close. I just want to mention one last thing here. Um, verses 29 to... to <coughs> excuse me, 29 to 31, gives us this long list of vices and sins. And I think what Paul is doing here by listing all of these sins here at the end of this chapter is he's, he's listing these all to kind of lay a trap for the person. And maybe there's some of you right now are thinking this. The person who's thinking, ah, oh, yeah, I just can't wait for the day that God's wrath is revealed against all the homosexuals. Paul is setting a trap for the person who's thinking, yeah, I am just so glad I'm not like them. Maybe you're sitting here thinking today, yeah, homosexuality, it's, it's, it's depraved sin. Maybe so. But look at this list. Have you, my friend, ever been guilty of coveting? Have you ever been guilty of envy. Verse 29, have you ever been guilty of deceit? You ever said something misleading? You ever lied about anything? Verse 30, you ever slandered somebody? Have you ever been haughty? Have you ever been boastful? 
You ever been disobedient to your parents? Has that ever happened in your life? You ever been faithless? Verse 32, have you ever lost faith? What Paul is saying is homosexuals are under the wrath of God. True. And so are you if you've committed any of these sins. So are you. But there is an escape, friends. <laughs> there is an escape. God is full of mercy and love. And he has shown that in such a profound way, sending his son into this world to live a life that was characterized by none of these things. Jesus lived perfectly in full submission to the law of God. He went to a cross. He died. He shed his blood to pay the penalty for all kinds of sins, and he was risen from the dead for our justification. There is more than enough grace in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to forgive and restore the person who's been practicing homosexuality for decades. And there's even enough grace in the blood of Jesus to forgive the prideful, self-righteous, morally upright churchgoer. There's even enough grace for you. There is grace for you in Jesus. Whatever you've done, however ashamed you are of it, Jesus stands ready not only to forgive you, but also to change you. He sent His Holy Spirit to change your heart so that you would move increasingly toward holiness. And let me just end here. I know we're going late here. It's noon, so thank you for your patience. But here, I'm just going to leave you with this. Um, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul writes this, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Key verb tense there, friends. Such were. In the past, that's what you were like, but because of the gospel, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise God for the gospel. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, I thank you so much that you are a God who reveals the truth to us. And thank you for the free grace and mercy that is always available in your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.